0: Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22? Luke chapter 22. Today is Palm Sunday. If you're wondering why we have all these palm branches here, that's what this is for. It's the beginning of Holy Week. On the Sunday before his crucifixion, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9-9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so, as Jesus comes into the city, and you can imagine him riding on this colt, everybody's recognizing him as the Messiah king that they were waiting for. And so, they're waving palm branches and they're shouting, Hosanna, and they're celebrating. And that's how the week that ended with a bloody cross and an empty tomb began. Most years we would set apart this Sunday to remember and to work our way through that scene. But this year, because we've been on a different track, we're going to just change pace a little bit because we've been making our way through the final days of Jesus' life. And in fact, our text this morning brings us to uh, an event that happened five days after that event. We're going to be picking up where we left off. The roar of celebration has subsided and a new roar A roar of hatred and violence is about to erupt. In our text this morning, King Jesus will be put on trial. So would you look now with me to Luke 22. We're going to be dealing with a large portion of of text today. So what we're going to do is we're going to break it into chunks. And what we will see in these chunks is a tale of four trials. So we're going to begin from... In verse 63 of of chapter 22, we're going to read all the way to the end of verse 5 of chapter 23. Here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living, and active word to us today. Beginning in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? They said many other things against him, blaspheming him. You say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and they brought him before Pilate and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. We're going to stop here in our reading. We're going to consider the first trial that our text confronts us with this morning. Here we find the trial before the Sanhedrin. Now, ultimately we know that the The driving force, the animating power behind this opposition of Jesus is from the devil himself. We've seen that over the last few weeks. But humanly speaking, what we find here is that the instigators of Good Friday, the ones who put the plan in motion that would lead to the crucifixion, were the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem, the high priests, the scribes. And once again, if you've grown up in the church, this is one of those details that should shock us and it doesn't. So I want you just to pull back for a moment, pretend that you aren't so familiar with this story, and imagine that you've just read through the whole Old Testament for the very first time, right? You've never even glanced at the New Testament, you just read through the Old Testament, and you've been reading about how God instituted these men called the Prophets. He set apart these men, and through these men, he was going to bless his people. He was going to teach these men his law. They were going to share it with others, and they were going to lead them in worship. So imagine you've just read that. You're delighting in that. What a great God. What a wonderful plan. You turn to the New Testament, and here you find these men, and they have Jesus standing before them, and Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that, that we've all been waiting for as you're making your way through the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is God in the flesh. Jesus is standing before these men through whom God's blessing was to be distributed to the people. These men who were to be to the teachers and the instructors of the people. And you would expect that they would be the first to recognize Jesus. Jesus. You would expect that these men would have been the first to wave palm branches at the side of the road and shout, Hosanna. You'd think they'd be elbowing people out of the way so that they could see him as he enters. You would expect that this trial, as they investigate the man in front of them, should have erupted into a worship service. It really should have. That's what should have happened. But instead, these men looked at Jesus and what they saw was a threat to their power and their position. A man who was going to bring about change to a system, to a world that actually was kind of working for them. And so they ambushed him in the night. And they blindfolded him. And they insulted him. And their guards punched him in his blindfolded face. And then these prideful religious men took their seats. And they subjected the king to this illegal mockery of a trial. They question him. We find their first question in verses 67 to 68. Look there with me. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. They ask him, are you the Christ? Now, once again, that's a word that we're very familiar with. Even if you've never been to church before, welcome, by the way, we're glad you're here. When you hear that word Christ, it's familiar to you. We assume that it's Jesus' last name. Like, I'm Levi Denbach, and he's Jesus Christ. But that's not what it is. Christ isn't his name. It's a title. It means anointed one. It refers to the long-anticipated king in the line of David, who is going to come and set his people free. And so the religious leaders are asking him that. They're looking at him and saying, Jesus, is that you? Are you the Lion of Judah? Are you the child of the promise? Are you our king? And by the way, that would be a really wonderful, insightful question if they actually wanted an answer. That would be a brilliant question. I hope that you've all asked that question. But they didn't want an answer, you see. They already heard his answer. They've been asking Jesus this for the last three years of his ministry. They've They've been inquiring of him all along, and they've been accumulating evidence they listened as Jesus taught, but not like the scribes and the prophets. He taught as one with authority. They saw him work signs and wonders, and yet their hearts were hard. In fact, you remember the story, we've alluded to it a few times over the last few weeks, when Lazarus had been dead for four days, and he was in his tomb. And Jesus spoke to four days dead Lazarus, and he said, Lazarus, arise, come out of your tomb. And Lazarus did. We look at that, we marvel. Do you know how they responded to that, these religious leaders? We read, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Pause. You'd think that they would go on to say, How are we going to get there in time so that we can join the worship and celebration of this man? What are we to do? We're here, he's there, we've got to get there. That's what they should have said. Instead, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Are you the Christ? They asked Jesus. They don't care. They do not care. They already have all of the evidence that they could ever possibly need But even though every scrap of evidence pointed to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, there was one obstacle that they could not overcome. If they acknowledge Jesus as the king, then they will have to bow. And everything will change. And they weren't about to do that. Can I just say, you know, we're talking about these self-righteous Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. And here in Aurelia, we have no Sanhedrin, I understand. But boy, here in Aurelia, we are surrounded by self-righteousness. Like we see it in ourselves, but don't we see it in our, in our world? Sorry, I'm popping all over the place. We, this self-righteousness. We're, we live in a culture where counsel culture is just a common phrase, right? We cancel everyone. Why do we cancel people? Because they're not as righteous as we are. Because they don't live up to the bar. They, they, they don't hit the standard. We are, we are very much, though we're not a religious people here in Aurelia, we are a self-righteous people, aren't we? And we suppress the truth. Romans 1 tells us that, that we do the same thing that these religious leaders were doing. We too are surrounded and swimming in evidence that points to our great God. But we take all of that evidence and we push it back and we find a way that we only see the evidence that supports the world in which I can live the way I want to live, where I can be the king, I can be the queen, I can be the God of my world. We keep all that evidence, but we suppress all of the evidence that points to him. One pastor notes, here is the hardest heart of all, the heart that refuses all proof and reason, the heart that refuses to admit what it knows. And so Jesus looks back at these arrogant men. through He's already been beaten through his bruised, swollen eyes. He looks back at them and he declares, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, that infuriates the leaders, and that sets them on a trajectory. But I want to make sure that we understand why that infuriates them and causes this turn of events. What does Jesus mean when he calls himself the Son of Man? In fact, if you've ever talked to, you know, maybe a skeptic, an atheist, uh, someone who denies the divinity of Jesus, they might say, did he even call himself God? Hmm? Hmm? Didn't he always call himself the Son of Man? At which point you can say, yeah, he sure did call himself the Son of Man. Turn with me in your Bible to Daniel 7, 13-14. What was Jesus saying when he referred to himself as the son of man? He was saying that this is who he is. Here this is. Daniel seven thirteen fourteen. 14. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man, who's going to be seated in glory, he's saying, I'm him. I'm the one who's going to be riding on the clouds in judgment. I'm the one who's going to receive the eternal kingdom. That's who I am. And this prompted their their next question, their incredulous question. When they looked back at him and they said, So are you the son of God then? He said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. We hear that the the chief priest in this moment actually ripped his garments and accused Jesus of blasphemy. They understood the implications of what Jesus was claiming. When When Jesus first arrived on the scene, these religious leaders were watching him. They were, they were holding on to a, a glimmer of hope that maybe Jesus would be the king who would lead the revolt against Rome. That maybe he would be the ticket to increase their political reach, fulfill their longings for autonomy and power. But with each passing day, they came to realize that Jesus came to fulfill the, the promises of God, not the expectations of man. They came to realize that Jesus is not just the, the king of the Jews Jesus is the Son of God. Mark gives further elaboration on on Jesus' answer to their question. Mark tells us Jesus responded, I am. He said, "Are are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is saying to these men, I'm not your pawn. I'm not your ladder to power. I'm not your step towards autonomy. I'm the Christ The Son of God, the Son of Man, and you will see me seated at the Father's right hand, coming on the clouds of glory. And at this they shouted, What further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. With that, these men accused the Son of God of blasphemy, and they declared that he should die. Except these men, with all their power and prestige, had no authority to put Jesus to death. There's this little ironic twist. Like, we we should kill him. And so then they had to go and they had to talk to Pilate. Say, hey, Pilate, could you, we we can't, we have no authority to do this, Pilate, but maybe you would do our dirty work and you would put Jesus to death. So they're, they're denying their king and instead they're turning to the Romans. The Romans who they hated and the Romans who hated them and saying, could you please dispose of Jesus for us? And that brings us to our second trial. The trial before Herod. Look with me at verses 6 to 12 of chapter 23. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Let's pause here and consider the second trial. And we'll move quickly through the second trial because it was more of a mockery than the first. We come to Herod here. And Herod is one of the most despicable men that we find in the New Testament. Herod, if you remember, was the one who had John the Baptist arrested. Uh, He arrested John the Baptist because John had the audacity to say that Herod shouldn't have married his brother's wife. And so Herod heard that and he said, all right, throw him in prison. And then one day Herod had a beautiful dancer dancing before him and he was so pleased with this dancer that he said, I'll give you half the kingdom, what do you want? And she said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so Herod had John beheaded. This is Herod, he's like a, He's like a man-child. If we were to sum up all the evidence that we have in the New Testament, Jesus calls him a fox elsewhere. He's just a man who's carried through his life by his carnal desires. Now, if the Jewish leaders who led the first trial were blinded by their pride and their lust for power, here is a man who is blinded by his foolishness and his lust for pleasure. He's got the opportunity to investigate Jesus. He's got Jesus right here in front of him. But all Herod is interested in in this moment is entertainment. Do a trick for me, Jesus. Heal somebody. Turn the water into wine. Entertain me, magician. The Jewish authorities were at least serious in their opposition of Jesus. But Herod simply played the fool. He wasn't interested in truth. He wasn't interested in justice. He certainly wasn't interested in determining if Jesus was actually worthy of his worship. Herod was like that kid in the youth group who was only there for the girls in the games. You ever met that kid in the youth group? He's, he's not a serious person. He doesn't even have reasons for not believing. He, he simply has no time for spiritual things. There are parties to be had. There are dancers to be enjoyed. There's sin to be delighted in. That's, that's Herod. It's a sad scene, isn't it? I hope there's no Herods in the room today. Yeah, there are just people in life who are so careless and flippant. Yeah, I remember somebody making a joke to me and they said, uh, they were talking about some thing that I won't repeat. And then they just laughed and said, by the way, I know I'm going to hell. And, it, and it's, just, it's just that's just life. Because like, I'm going to have my fun. I'm not going to stop. And I'm not interested in talking about serious weighty things. Because there's fun to be had. There are people like that in the world. Perhaps some of us in this room have been those people. I hope none of us still are those people. But that—that's what we see in Herod. Can't be bothered. He's got Jesus sitting right in front of him, but there's dancers to be enjoyed. Jesus reminds me of Proverbs one twenty-two. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing, and fools hate knowledge? Commentator I. Howard Marshall observes. Herod is presented as a frivolous person, hoping to see some amusing tricks performed by one whom he probably regarded as some kind of magician. Hear this. To such a person, Jesus had nothing to say. Notice that detail in the text. He, here's Herod just like having laughing it up, loving life. Oh, this is I had heard about Jesus. This'll be interesting. Let's see, let's see if we see some entertainment today. And, and Jesus had nothing to say to that kind of person. Because he's not a clown. He's not an entertainer. If you seek him, you will find him, if you seek him with all your heart. But he's not going to perform signs and wonders for you to impress you. And we, we need to know that, by the way, as we talk to people. Because so many times people, they talk about him in this flippant way, as if, you know, because you know, we're on trial before Jesus. You want me to worship your Jesus? Let's see what he can do. To such a person he has nothing to say. Herod would not be denied his fun, So he stripped Jesus down and he dressed him up in his royal garments. Remember at this point Jesus is all beaten and bruised and broken. But they dress him up like a king. And he and his guards insult him. And the chief priests and scribes are all there. They're insulting him and laughing at him. And look at this. Look at the king. Oh, and he sends him back to Pilate. Enough with this. I've got to turn back to my fun. That's the end of the second trial. It brings us to the third trial. Trial before Pilate. Now, technically, Pilate's trial began in verses 1 to 5 when the Jews came to Pilate. Remember, they want, they want Pilate to put Jesus to death because they can't do it. They don't have the authority. So they come to Pilate and they trump up their false charges. They accuse Jesus of misleading the people, of forbidding the people from paying tribute to Caesar and of claiming to be the king. Now, the first two are patently false. And the third is is exaggerated and misrepresented in such a way as to force Pilate's hand. And Pilate just recognized trouble. And that's why we moved right to Herod. Because after verses 1 to 5, Pilate just saw, this is a mess. As soon as they mentioned that he's from Galilee, Pilate says, oh good, Herod's jurisdiction. Send him to Herod. But now Herod sent him back, all all dressed up. And Herod says, he's innocent. Pilate's going to have to deal with this. His initial response was delay and deferral. But now he's going to have to actually deal with Jesus. So look with me at verse 13. And this will bring us to the end of our text. Verse 13 all the way to verse 25. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. And he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. After examining before you, behold, I didn't find... I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man! Release to us Barabbas! A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I'll therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you read through the other Gospels, they devote more attention to the dialogue that went back and forth between Jesus and Pilate. But Luke is intentionally omitting the dialogue because he wants to emphasize this one point. Luke wants us to see that Pilate's real challenge was not in trying to discern whether or not Jesus was guilty or innocent. He knew he was innocent. That, that, That happened right away. Herod knew he was innocent. Well, then what's happening in this trial? Well, the real trial, the real challenge is determining what Pilate is now going to do with this innocent Jesus who stands before him. That's the trial. He's been entrusted with this responsibility of maintaining, upholding justice, but he's got a crowd, on the other hand, threatening to lodge a formal complaint, perhaps causing a, a rebellion in his streets while he's in charge. Pilate's trial has nothing to do with weighing evidence. and has everything to do with trying to wiggle away from this Jesus without suffering the wrath of the world. So he tried to send Jesus to Herod. That's the first thing he did, but that failed. He came, bounced right back. We see his next strategy in verse 16. He tried to appease the crowd. He said, look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I'll therefore punish him and release him. He recognizes their bloodlust, and he says, tell you what, I'll take him back, we'll lash him, we'll, we'll beat him up, we'll rough him up, and then we'll send him out. But they wanted more blood than that. So finally, Pilate pulled out one final attempt. He told them they could choose between releasing Jesus, an obviously innocent man, declared innocent by him and by Herod, or they could have Barabbas, who was a man who had already been convicted guilty of doing all the things that they were saying Jesus had done. And worse, Barabbas was a murderer. He says, surely this will put an end to it. And the crowd says, give us Barabbas. Now, Pilate is perplexed at this point in the text. Look at verse 22, the second half. He says, why? Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I'll punish him and release him. He goes back to it. I'll take him back. We'll rough him up. It's fine. It's fine. The crowd wouldn't have it. And finally we read in verse 23, And their voices prevailed. The voices of the world prevailed in Pilate's heart. He ignored his conscience. He ignored what was right. He ignored the Jesus who was standing right in front of him so that he could appease the voices of the world. He knew that Jesus was innocent, but if he chose to side with Jesus, then he would be choosing not to side with the world. He would be in opposition to the world. They'd be in opposition to him, and he wouldn't have that. It wasn't worth the cost. G. Campbell Morgan says, he went wrong, Pilate went wrong, where many a man goes wrong, when he sold his conscience for convenience and safety, when he spat in the face of justice and adopted the way of policy. Pilate was a pragmatic man, a company man, a man of high position, a man who knew what it takes to get to the top. And as Pilate came face to face with the hatred and the contempt that was directed at Jesus, he weighed the cost and decided that he wanted no part of it. He wanted to be distanced from Jesus. And in these three trials, what we find are three snapshots of how humanity, that's all of us, stand in judgment over Jesus. So just consider what we've seen. I've been trying to move pretty quickly through these. So that we could pull back for a moment and discern. The self righteous reject Jesus as king and they reject Jesus as divine. Why? Because they want to be little kings and queens and gods unto themselves. Some people reject Jesus because they don't want somebody telling them what to do. So I tell me what to do, I call the shots. That's what happened in the first scene, isn't it? And the foolish reject Jesus because. They treat him just like they treat everything else in life, flippantly. It's, just, it's all a joke. Everything's just a joke. It's all just a sham. It's all just a casual, flippant, who cares? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's their disposition towards everything. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Looking just to entertain themselves to death. And the worldly feel a slight draw to Jesus, but they defer and they deny, and eventually they just cut ties because they recognize that the the cost of following Jesus is too high. If I follow him, I'm going to lose the world. So give me the world and keep your Jesus. And with that, these sinful, finite, created beings stood in judgment over the sinless, divine author of life, and together they condemned him to death. A crown of thorns was placed upon his head. He was beaten. He was mocked and insulted. He was scourged. He was stripped naked. And he was nailed to a cross between two thieves. Three trials he was subjected to. But I told you we'd be considering four trials this morning. And so as we come to our conclusion, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 20. You can find that right right at the end of your Bible. So Jesus stood on trial before the self-righteous and before the fools and before the worldly men and women. And Jesus still does stand on trial before the self-righteous and before the fools and before the worldly. Every day we go out and, and Jesus is standing trial. But the day is soon coming when all of them and all of us we'll stand before the fourth and final trial, and that is the trial before God. How is it that Jesus was willing and able to suffer such horrific injustice without retaliating? If he is the perfectly just king, then how did he sit there silently while the soldier punched him in his blindfolded face and laughed, hey, prophesy, who is it that struck you, Jesus? Consider the tragedy and the irony of everything we've just read. Here we have the Jewish leaders those who had been commissioned to teach the law and they're breaking the law in order to murder the lawgiver. Here we have Herod who, has, who spent his life dressing himself up like a king but here he's dressing Jesus up like a king to mock him. Who's the imposter in this scene? Here we have Pilate who is choosing to wash his hands of the God who made the world so that he could try to make peace with this world that's at war with God. And in each of these trials Jesus is watching. You know, just think about that. Let's pull back for a second. In, in all these trials, people are, they're looking at Jesus. They're, trying, they're stacking up, give us evidence, Jesus. What's, what are you going to say, Jesus, as you stand before our bar? And in each of these trials, Jesus is watching. Pilate and Herod, the soldiers, the Jews, the observers. He's, he's soaking all of this in. And I imagine it must have grieved his heart. Jesus knows that the lies are going to give way to the truth. The evidence that's been suppressed is going to come bursting out. Justice is going to prevail. All of this injustice is going to be judged. Jesus saw behind the mock trial. He saw beyond Herod's palace, beyond Pilate's court. He saw beyond all of that to the final trial, the only trial that matters. Hear this trial, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Look there with me. So, the man who struck Jesus in his blindfolded face will fall before the throne as the books are opened. Jesus did know who was striking him. Every man and woman that shouted in unison, crucify him, crucify him, will bow before the throne. The man who spent a lifetime suppressing the truth will bow. The woman who decided to reject Jesus so that she could keep her sin will bow. The people who spent a lifetime deferring and delaying and denying him will bow. The priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Herod, Pilate, the guards who performed the flogging, the guards who swung the hammer, they will all fall down on their faces and they will listen with horror as the king recites the evidence against them. And in this trial, nothing less than perfect justice will do. For the wages of sin is death. And the one who was accused will rise to judge. Woe to the man and woe to the woman who spent a lifetime judging Jesus as if he answers to you. He doesn't. Woe to the man and the woman who suppressed the evidence and denied Jesus what he was due You spent your whole life judging Jesus. Then you die and you wake up standing in your flesh before his bar. The day is coming when every knee will bow. What will you say then? Whatever it is, I would plead with you that you say it now. Fall to your knees now. Confess him as God and Christ. Now is better. Now is easier. Bow now and live forever and before i conclude cuz that's what i've got i would just say the scandal of it all i listed off herod and pilate i listed off those who flogged jesus those who swung the hammer remember one of the guards stood at the cross and he said truly this man was the son of god i suspect that that man seeing what he saw turned repented changed There's no record of of what happened with that man, but I would suspect that he did. And guess what? If he did repent and believe in Jesus Christ, even though he swung the hammer that crucified his Savior, there's forgiveness for him. His name's written in the book of life. Herod, for all of his cruelty, all of his wickedness, if Herod had repented, there would be forgiveness for him. One of the thieves dying on the cross, remember what happened? They were mocking Jesus, and then one of the thieves just smartened up and realized, no, what, we deserve this, but he does not. And he said, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. There's forgiveness. There's hope. There's life. That's the scandal of this whole mystery. All of this injustice, all of the wickedness, the vileness, gave way to the cross where Jesus Christ died a death that he did not deserve to die. Why? So that people like Herod and Pilate and the Jews and you and me and the soldiers who swung the hammer and anyone who will repent and believe can be saved. It's the beauty and the glory and the scandal of the gospel. He's the king that we need, not the king that we expected. And so can I tell you, please don't be those who come and, 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 and clamor after a Jesus who isn't the Jesus of the Bible. Don't be like the, the, the scribes who were looking for a king who would make them powerful and who rejected Jesus because his way was a way of lowliness. Don't be like those people who are looking for their best life now, who are saying, I'm, I'm coming to Jesus because I think he's going to make me rich and he's going to make me healthy and happy right now. Listen, no, no he's going to give you all of everything that you could ever want then. But right now, what you need is not to be rich and healthy and happy. Right now, what you need is to be saved. And that's what he offers. So you bow your knee before the king. Bow now, because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why wait Why choose to bow with trembling and fear when you could bow with reverence and joy today? To that end, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to to come before your word, to read these texts that, that expose a story of what happened and yet simultaneously they expose the story of what's happening in us, what's happening in the world around us day by day. Forgive us for the times that we have stood in judgment over you, for the times that we have positioned ourselves as the judges, as the jury, determining whether or not you could be trusted, determining whether or not you deserved our worship. You have already given us all that we need. I pray that you would help us now in humility to stop suppressing the evidence, to stop suppressing the truth and to instead see the glory of it, that there is grace for sinners. There's grace for the, the vilest. There's, there's grace for the pilots and the Herods. Surely there's grace for us. God, I pray that today you would open our eyes to see. And Lord, I thank you for, I, I thank you for the privilege. I, I feel in my flesh like I... <laughs> How do I say it? I feel like I just preached a bad sermon, but I believe that by your spirit, you're preaching a better sermon. And I pray that now you would preach the sermon that each and every one of us needs and you'd press the truth into our hearts and that you would bring about change in us. I pray that that we would be those who are ready for that fourth and final trial and we know that our readiness will not come from the good deeds that we do. It won't come from any merit in us. But on that day when we stand before that judgment seat, we'll say, I'm here because Jesus Christ paid my debt and he said that I could come. I pray that that would be true for everyone in this room. I pray it would be true for our kids who are out learning in the classrooms right now. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?